Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to District 34. This week in the studio, we're speaking with Anthony Clark, who is running for office in Illinois. He's running for Congress in CD7, which is uh, on the south side of the Chicago area. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Truly honored to be here, and I uh, look forward to chopping it up with you. A hundred percent. So I want to talk a little bit about um, education because you're a high school teacher. And I think we have a big problem in the country as far as the way we finance our school system. It's not entirely equitable. I believe that each kid should have the same amount of money no matter where they go to school. But what's happening now in a great part of the country is you have the poorer areas that are more densely populated. They have lower property taxes. So they are taking in less money based on that, and they're dividing it up with more kids versus wealthy areas where you have higher property values or go higher property taxes and fewer kids. So why is it so difficult to get reform in this area? And what is your uh, platform? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, you, you just basically hit on the head in regards to uh, funding our public school systems via property taxes is 100% inequitable. Uh, you know, I'm a public high school teacher. I've been teaching for 11 years. And thankfully for me, which helps us, you know, in regard to our ideology and what we fight for, at a federal level uh, within this race. You know, I've taught two years at an alternative school on the west side of Chicago. I taught one year at a charter school on the west side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was one year uh, CTU, so Chicago Public Schools, actually a strike year in 2012. I was on strike with uh, Chicago Public School teachers. And now I've been teaching about seven years at uh, my current high school, which is a public high school out, right outside of Chicago, within the Chicagoland area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so since I've been teaching for a total of 11 years, and sharing those truths uh, has high impact on individuals understanding the interconnected issues that lead to uh, divestment and inequity within our educational system. I went from essentially my first school district where I was an alternative school teacher to literally having three computers within my classroom. I had to teach freshmen through senior students within that classroom, just one teacher. I could not make any copies. They literally had me teaching music online. So we didn't have any instruments, but we were teaching music. I am not musically inclined, uh, so you can imagine how that went. They have me teaching Spanish online. I am not bilingual. I wish I was. I wish I paid more attention in Spanish class. Shout out to Senorita Rowe. You really gave effort. You really tried to make me learn. I didn't. Uh, Wait, hang on a second. They had you teaching Spanish? Correct, correct. So I was teaching Spanish online with three computers uh, at that time, about 25 students. Uh, So essentially it it was a housing center. Uh, okay. Because, of course, each student has a, 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 you know, a dollar sign above their head right. that gets funneled into, you know, our, our local government. Uh, so it's a huge issue. So I go from that to the current school that I'm working at to where every student has a Chromebook. Uh, you know, we can make as many copies as we see fit on a daily basis. Yeah. No one tracks us. Every, every uh, you know, classroom has a computer, even if the students don't have a Chromebook, has access to a computer. We have all the books we need. We actually have a, a library uh, and librarians active in the building. So there's vast disparities in regards to social and economic wealth uh, within Chicago and across the nation. Yeah. And it's a huge issue. So as you stated, you hit it on the head in regard to property taxes. And I don't want to get too deep because we could talk, literally talk about this for hours, yeah. but I challenge individuals 
to recognize the root cause issues that have led to where we currently are. Uh, if you look at the end of slavery in 1865, you know, we get into sharecropping. Of course, we get into blacks migrating and entering into the north and, you know, expanding uh, their outreach and, you know, access to opportunity. Then, of course, we get to desegregation. Right. We consistently have had white supremacy respond to uh, black Americans, brown Americans, you know, poor Americans attempting to access greater opportunity and to right. gain a greater foothold within America, access that American dream. So you have Jim Crow. Uh, you have redlining, you know, you have predatory bank lending uh, that occurred, banks denying loans. You have yeah. white flight that occurred where, you know, many white community members literally left communities and, and, and exited, you know, uh, the urban centers. So then you have a heavy population of predominantly black, brown, poor individuals living within centers where the property value is now lowered. Right. Through the decades and decades of pervasive gun violence, lack of infrastructure investment, school closures, mental health facility closures, food deserts, we could go on and on, yeah. the property value continues to lower. So the pot that we have to divvy up for public schools of predominantly black and brown communities is extremely scarce. Yeah. Meanwhile, you have communities such as Oak Park, which is in right. the district, to where your median household income is eighty to $85,000, uh, you have higher property value, or yeah. have higher property taxes to go into the schools, and you could cross the street, literally. Austin separates Oak Park from the Austin community, and the median income goes down to about twenty-five dollars to $32,000. So it's a huge impact that exists. You see it with, in regard to what our students are facing. Shout out to CTU, who recently went on strike. And what yeah. they were striking for, you think, would be common. So many people would think about this and say, what? The school doesn't have this. They were literally striking to have at least one social worker and one nurse in <laughs> every building. I'm going to say that again. Teachers had to go on strike <clears throat> to demand that every Chicago public school had at least one social worker and one nurse in every building. And these are buildings that are not short on police officers and resource oh, officers uh, yeah. that are pushing into the school to prison pipeline. Yeah. So again, it's a pervasive issue and it continues. It's another uh, tool that's utilized to uh, deny predominantly black and brown communities from building social and economic generational wealth. It's a huge issue that exists. And if you want to, you know, take it further in regards to solutions, we have to identify. Yeah. How do we fix this issue? You know, I know there's communities across the country. Uh, some of them do the Robin Hood model uh, right. to where, you know, they pull in all of the property tax money, you know, look at, you know, public schools within the districts and then divvy it up based upon need. Uh, you know, of course, you know, that's something that, but that's treating a symptom. You know, how do we truly eliminate the issue? And I think, right. as you mentioned earlier, what we're trying to research and articulate is at a federal level, because we truly believe that when you have by design and equity that exists, that the government has played a direct role in creating and maintaining, the government has to play a direct role in overturning it right. uh, and, you know, creating a new disproportionate number uh, that's not negative, but positive. So at a federal level, the issues are interconnected and so should the solutions. First, we have to look at our military budget, you know, the military industrial right. complex. I served six years active duty. We spend trillions of dollars on funding yeah, wars. An insane rich men, amount. Rich men's war, insane amount, rich men's wars. They push the button. And then the working class poor, like myself, which we call the poverty draft, we're the ones who go fight the wars and die in the wars. So let's look out, look at how we could literally defund at least 75% of our military budget, place diplomacy first, and then reallocate those funds into our educational system. That would be a huge boon for schools across this nation. And I also feel like you mentioned it, there needs to be an identified baseline 
in regard to what is the general or minimal access of opportunity yeah. every student needs in order to succeed. Yeah. Uh, and I think and that's not happening at a federal now. level. That is not happening it's now. Not that's happening. why you have schools. No, that's why you have schools with three computers and schools with 60 computers. Right. And even at the federal level, you know, it used to be every student, you know, every student succeeds act, Title I funding, even our yeah. calculation system at a federal level is inaccurate. Uh, so we need to address those issues. I think we need to address standardized testing, which often accounts for how, stu uh, how schools get funding. Yes. Uh, because those are biased. Those are racist. We They're need to very biased. Uh, standardized testing. Uh, but again, I think the main issue is identifying at a base level what every school across this nation needs to succeed. Also, tying in our teachers at a base level, what is a livable wage, even yeah. greater than a livable teachers wage? Teachers are underpaid, I agree with you. Oh my goodness. My first teaching job, I made about 20000 That's My insane. teaching job now, I'm in six figures, and we have teachers within this building that are making $160,000, $170,000. So we need to identify a baseline level for our teachers as yeah. well, who are often teaching in communities they can't even afford to live in. Right. They have to work multiple jobs in order right. to survive and are buying the, their own classroom materials <laughs> for their students. Uh, yeah, so yeah, you so know, and they're also are. very well educated. I mean, the minimum baseline here, at least in California, you have to have the equivalent of a master's degree. So it's not mm -hmm. we're, we're also taking folks that if they went into the private sector would be making a hell of a lot more money than 20K or 35K. Cor correct. So you it's, know, I, it's I ridiculous salute, yeah. that we expect that. Absolutely. I salute all teachers. You know, uh, we, we, we're overworked and underappreciated yeah. across the board. You know, we're at the front lines and I truly appreciate teachers paraprofessionals, teachers' assistants, the bus drivers, any and everybody that plays a role within our educational system, the lunch women, men, women and they, everybody yeah. I salute. Uh, and another issue, particularly in Chicago, but across this nation, I, I want to say this as well, I'm 100% against privatization, whether that yeah, be privatization of our educational systems or privatization of our prison systems, because when you privatize, you're automatically incentivizing profit and you're exactly. placing profit before people. And That's we had right. a former mayor, Rahm Emanuel, we had Arnie Duncan, uh, there's actually, I challenge individuals, if you're interested in the 7th Congressional District race, to YouTube Danny K. Davis and Arnie Duncan. Type that in. Okay. You will be connected to a backroom meeting. It's like three videos. With Rahm Emanuel? With Arnie Duncan. It was oh, Arnie not, Duncan, Ron, okay. Ron wasn't there, but with Arnie Duncan, Danny oh. K. Davis, and others meeting in the backroom to discuss school closures, which is a huge issue in our community and across the nation. Uh, so again, and I want to say this and make it clear. Do not attack parents or families that are choosing charter schools for their children. We cannot blame a family similar to mine when I was younger, who was just simply desperate and looking for better yeah, opportunities for their child, right? I get but that, But what yeah. we can do is blame local and federal governments who purposely are attacking public yeah. school funding and siphoning that money into charter school setting when That's data right. shows that charter schools are not more successful than public school systems. And charter schools oftentimes are not investing in special education right. and they have selective enrollment to where they're picking and choosing and often kicking out students that they yeah. do not want to deal with. Yeah. Uh, so it's a huge interconnected issue that we could, again, talk about for hours and hours. But as a teacher, uh, we definitely have to change where we currently are. And we look at this administration right now trying to take money away from, uh, you know, our lunch programs. That's a huge issue. You know, I'm big on the Black Panther Party for Ed Hampton and others. One of the main things they recognized and identified was the importance right. of lunch before, during, and after right. school. And I still have students that often their primary meal comes from their school. Uh, so it's a huge issue that we have to we have to identify and address. 
That's like amazing. Yeah. So Fred Hampton, you bring up, he had the, the Black Panthers had the lunch program. That was a big part right, of what right. they Started, were yep. doing in their activism. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many folks mm-hmm. um, know that, but I think it's important. You brought up um, testing. I want to talk about that for a second, only because um, I had done some volunteer tutoring at the Boys and Girls Club uh, for SAT prep for these kids that were getting ready to take the PSAT. And mm-hmm. The first day that I was doing this, I had asked the Princeton Review to supply some free books and testing uh, tests so that these kids get a, could get a test, take and see where they were at, evaluate, et cetera, look, look at where they needed to improve their scores. And I cannot tell you, I realized within the first like five tests I looked at that a lot of these kids didn't have an understanding of the vocabulary that was on that test mm-hmm. so I realized well you know if you don't understand the words within the questions that are being asked you how can you how can they uh, even begin to gauge your logical or critical reasoning skills it's not possible mm-hmm. uh, like mm-hmm. one example is the word bellicose if you've never seen that word before you're not going to realize that it means warlike you're going to think it means mm-hmm. pretty Bella you know mm-hmm. bellicose mm-hmm. like I under- so I could understand why right. this is detrimental and I think that's something else that we fundamentally need to address in our system because it's pervasive from the top to the bottom it, it's like you're saying the standardized testing for uh, no child left behind like all the way up whether it's the school funding how you get into college mm-hmm. all of these things and it's it's biased no no question I, you know I thank you for bringing that up uh, you know again I've been teaching for a long time now and you know and I, I can't remember the article but it was so interesting. I just saw it online scrolling through where a poet, uh, you know, a well-known yeah. poet stated that one of her poems was utilized uh, for standardized testing and she couldn't answer the questions. Yeah. And it was her poem. <laughs> oh uh, and, and, and so it's a huge issue that exists. That's crazy. And even at a personal connection, what I think oftentimes we're doing with our bias standardized tests, yeah. we're not testing for ability. No, we're not testing skill or ability like students will be able to. The majority of our students have the cognitive ability. But as you stated, if the information we're exposing them to, they're not familiar with, don't have any references for. It's not that they can't do it. They just don't have maybe a cultural connection to the material. Yeah, right. You know, because I remember teaching. Oh, what are you about to say? No, it's like, it's insane. Like, I mean, I went to, um, I, I'm one of those spoiled children that was sent to a private school. I own that. But I remember having a class specifically called vocabulary and I didn't mm-hmm. realize it at the time. I realize it really clearly now, but the entire point of that class was to teach vocabulary words that were going to be on the SAT. I mean, how right, is right. that not privilege and advantage? Not every oh, kid has exactly. that access. It's, an, it's no, crazy. The majority and it's not of parents right. Love, right. The majority of parents love their child the same. Uh, but when you look at the, again, economic inequity that exists, yeah. I have parents that love their children that are able to afford additional tutoring outside of the school yeah. building. And then I have parents that just have to depend on what the school offers. And, yeah. you know, making a personal connection is real because I even had it because I'll never forget. I was in one of my English classes and we were discussing a body of text mm-hmm. and the body of text was talking about kayaking. Uh, I personally never kayaked before in my life. Yeah. Uh, so I had a group of students and at first I was like, why aren't they getting this, uh, this body of text? Why can't they comprehend this? It's not that they didn't have the cognitive ability again. They right. didn't know what the hell kayaking was, was. Like, you know, who, <laughs> exactly. right. Who, who kayaks in Chicago? Like, you know I mean? Some people do, but not, yeah. <laughs> not how I grew up and not how many people I, you know, no, no hate on kayakers, you know, shout out to <laughs> you. Enjoy your kayaking. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I haven't kayaked. And many I've of my never students kayaked have either. not had that exposure. Right. So. It's a huge issue. So we need to address those issues. Yeah, 100%. We need to address the type of information, you know, we're providing to our youth. 
And we really need to meet them where they're at because every student has the ability to succeed, but it's yeah. how we're presenting the information to them and also how we're expecting them to then deliver that information. We're not differentiating and right. we're not scaffolding at the level that right. we need to. Right. At the, at the very base, if we do not do something to like everybody starts at a different social starting place, right? Whether you're rich, you're poor, you're male, you're female, whatever race you are, whatever religion you believe in, all of these things are put you at an advantage, disadvantage, et cetera. I mean, the whole point of having equality of opportunity is to to really to fix that. Right. And I think the best way to go about doing that is through education. And we are absolutely failing miserably in this area in this country at this point. So. Um, I did want to talk to you about that. And I think you also support uh, a public university that's tuition free as well, which this is another area we've seen privatization in. Our our public university system, I don't know if folks realize this, this concept is not a new one. They once were tuition free. We chose to privatize our universities, our public universities. We chose to definance the state money that was going into them. And this has been a very bad mistake, I think, because I believe education at every level is really an investment in society and the benefits from that are just enormous compared to so many other areas where we uh, are put our, are putting our money instead so um you back bernie sanders uh tuition-free university plan correct student debt a concern for folks around this table okay right it's like a total question i i'm with you i'm still under it as well 34 years old right Average American graduates with $30,000 worth of debt, and black women have the highest amount of debt of any country, right? Bernie Sanders' plan, cancel student debt. Period. Cancel all of it. Yeah. I hear things like canceling student debt. I think, like, how could this not be a priority? I don't even care if you're in school. You plan on having a family one day. How can this not be? Because like you said, if you cancel out this debt, it's going back into the community. My grandma only has debt because of me. When my mama got pregnant with me, my grandma went back to school to get a better job for me. So I'm laying on the back of my debt, her debt, and everything in between, all the money she put down so I could be here right now. I have federal student loans, but the money I pay Howard comes out of her home equity because in her will, I get the house. So at the end of the day, everyone thinks of it and they speak to me and they're like, oh, well, you don't really have student debt. No, I have family debt. I got real debt and I got siblings. I got to go through the same thing too. You know, frankly, it's interesting because, you know, years ago, 2008 specifically, there was no question that we had to bail out the banks. We had to bail out the car companies. This is trillions of dollars. And a check was cut. It was like, we have to do this. And the money is going to come from you all. But when it comes to talking about programs, right, that release the shackles of debt over people who have been strapped to take out those loans simply because we have a higher education system that's built the way it is, now people are asking. And so for me, Absolutely, we have answers. And let's be honest, what's a better economic stimulus? Giving trillions of dollars to company execs who keep it, who hoard it. There's like a big like elitism behind like going to school. Like if you have a college degree, like that's automatically supposed to separate you from somebody else. What, what we have, been, have you been told about college? You gotta go to college to set yourself apart. You gotta go to college to make it. There's so that's why like student loan debt, they think about it as like, oh, well that person decided to go to school. They decided to take out that debt. That's their problem. 
and they're not realizing that, well, okay, yeah, it could be their problem, but now it's a big, big, huge community of people who are, they're strapped for cash all the time, so they can't reinvest, they can't own property, they can't do all sorts of things now to work and move in the economy. They, my parents, like, they just finished, like, paying off their schooling. And so, like, I know that at least for them, like, there's so much more, like, my dad, like, would have done or, like, my mom would have done if they didn't have that burden of, well, dang, I have to pay this, I have to play Sally Mae all the time. Seniors are the fastest growing number of people with student debt. And there are, like last year, I say that again, I'm sorry. Seniors are the fastest growing population that's paying student debt. Something like 60,000 seniors had their social security checks garnished last yeah. year for student debt payments. So some people say, why are you giving this to everybody? Why are you paying off everybody's loans? Why, like, there's some people, okay, I'm a, right. I'm, a, I'm a lawyer, I can earn a salary, maybe don't pay off my loans. But what you end up having is us now fighting against each other. And the strongest policies are the ones that actually involve everybody in this country and get everybody's skin in the game. And it stops being a black-white issue. You can't say it's only black people getting Social Security. You can't say it's only poor people, uh, Latinos, immigrants. It's all of this together. So you get a lot of political strength, a political strategy, not just like about like giveaways or something like that. Like the way to win is actually to include everybody. No question, 100%. You know, education should be and is a human right. And the yeah. way I look at it, it's not, it's not free, but we're just expanding our current public educational system to where you attend high school, unless you go to a private high school right. institution, you're not directly paying. There's some fees that exist, but you're not paying to send your child uh, to the public high school that they attend within their right. district and community. We're expanding this. It's a huge issue that exists. And again, I like to share personal stories to make these connections. We currently have students that, again, have the ability to succeed. Uh, have the ability to be wonderful in their life, but predatory institutions uh, are placing yeah. profit before their education, before their well-being, and it's taking advantage of our youth. You know, who I can truly I agree. graduate from college and pursue their dreams? Oftentimes, when they're applying for these entry-level positions that are now asking for experience, how the hell are you entry-level, but I need experience? Yeah. Uh, that's a huge issue. But also, Sally Mae is calling you on a daily basis or knocking yeah. on your door for that forty, fifty to $60,000 you owe so you can't necessarily build up like in the past generations no. were able to do and build your dream, pursue your dream because you got to go work at, that's right. you know, McDonald's, shout out to all McDonald's no, Anthony, that's right. You all, you all need to make a livable wage, you know, working, we love all workers, but you're not yeah. able to pursue what you get your degree in because right. you're busy paying off debt. Pay, busy paying uh, off the debt. I mean, I have a master's degree and I never had to take a student loan. That should mm -hmm. tell you how rapidly the escalation, the definancing and the escalation tuition happened. I was able to mm -hmm. do that because back when I was in the UC system, it was still pretty much funded by the state of California. Now these kids are down to dealing with, you know, 8% funding coming from the state. So this is might as well at this point be a private institution. It's not right. It's um, no. It's definitely not, not where all. our priorities should be as a nation, in my opinion. No. Um, I want to, yeah, I want to talk with you also about gun reform. I know that you have had students that have uh, died from gun violence, and that's mm -hmm. got to be very heartbreaking. I can't even imagine what that, what that feels like. But I, I feel like the conversation when gun violence has a little been a little bit hijacked at this point because of the all of these horrible mass shootings that we have, and I'm not saying that they're not terrible, we shouldn't do something about them. I just want to point out, and I think that you will agree with me on this, that the, the majority of gun violence isn't mass shootings. It's, it's, it's gun violence that's happening in urban areas such as Philadelphia, such as Chicago. And I really feel like 
the folks that are trying to fix that and been working this in this area for a long time about um, coming up with gun reform that would help, mm-hmm. they, they need to be stakeholders in this conversation. And I just, I don't know if it's because the media is so attracted to this violence that we see with these mass shootings that this other stuff I think is, is not really getting a spotlight put on it at this point. And I think it's a problem. So you had some good plans on your website that I looked at as far as gun reform uh, is concerned. Can you walk us through what some of the highlights of those are? Yeah, I mean, definitely just to provide a summary, you know, again, thank you for bringing this up. It's a huge issue that exists, and I believe it's interconnected. And essentially the root cause from ourselves, our team, and and the movement that we're part of is capitalism. You know, capitalism. Uh, yeah. uh, yes, up. thank uh, you so much. It, capitalism right. undergirds all of these systems. I wish people undergirds, would realize right. that. Sorry. Right, definitely. No, you're very excited we, you said that. that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's the root cause issue as yeah. it's propped up by white supremacy. So when you 100%. talk about, you know, uh, the pervasive gun violence issue that exists, gun violence should be a public health crisis. It's an epidemic. It's a pervasive epidemic. I think the reason oftentimes talking heads and individuals within politics keep it at the mass shooting level is because of who we perceive mass shootings to predominantly impact, you know, predominantly white America. Uh, And if you keep it at that level, you're not talking about the other interconnected issues that are often ignored that would lead lead to addressing gun violence in urban communities that will lead to addressing police gun violence, which is a huge issue, and will also lead to addressing domestic violence, domestic gun violence. So many individuals that are shot by a partner, murdered by a partner uh, via guns, uh, because we can't talk about a solution without talking about the interconnected problems. If we truly, if we truly push for uh, investment in our infrastructure, job creation, a federal jobs guarantee, if we look yeah. at our healthcare industry, healthcare is a human right, Medicare for all, not access to, not an option. These are words of the oppressor, similar to civility. We put justice right. first as a human right, get mental health facilities in our communities. Uh, if we look at, again, education, you know, making education accessible for all, through high school and when they go to college and so on and so forth. If we look at making a livable wage, which is extremely important because salute to everyone that's fought for $15. I salute you, but let's be honest, $15 is not enough. No, We need a livable wage. We truly need a livable wage. And if we address housing, housing should be a human right. You know, the over 80,000 individuals that are homeless in Chicago and the millions that are homeless across this nation, that's a huge issue. If you start investing in these communities that are divested in, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be lack of infrastructure investment, food deserts that exist, school closures, all these issues, you will see a decrease in gun violence. Because yeah. right now, again, tie back to what we talked about earlier with redlining and Jim Crow, you have <sighs> hyper-focused centers of lack of opportunity. So you have many individuals pulling for, scratching, and fighting yeah. for the same resources. And we haven't even talked about the racist war on drugs. Yes, oh, you God, know, and, yeah. and, and cannabis, the impact that's had on a, on a family unit and the individuals and communities. So we, yes, we have to eliminate assault weapons. You know, no one should be carrying around weapons of war. Yes, so many talking points in regards to stricter gun laws, of course, but we're doing a disservice to our communities if we don't talk about the interconnected issues that exist and how yeah. capitalism plays a role, money and politics plays a role yep. in allowing pervasive gun violence uh, to remain and predominantly impact black, brown and poor communities. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, this this has just been escalating for so many decades now, and there seems to be little will within our government to actually do anything about it. You know, I think uh, I think that most Americans want something done about this issue. I mean, it's insane that that so many people are dying needlessly for these reasons, and it's something that we can fix. It's, and it is completely 
completely tied to false scarcity, what I call false scarcity, because if we are the richest nation in the world and we cannot adequately have a bottom level of what we what we give to folks that are just, you know, bottom level. I'm not even talking about, you know, any sort of meritocracy. I'm just talking about what's the bottom threshold that we should accept accept as a society for people to live off, live by. I mean, that mm-hmm. changes everything. Of course there's more crime and violence when there's poverty. Right. There's I mean, this yeah, is man, not yeah. like, you know, it's it's easy yeah, that, to see that why that'd be level. the case. Right. That bottom level argument is so is so key and so interesting in a sense because I think, you know, Trump is a symptom. He is not a root cause issue. I agree. Uh, but, you know, one of the issues. He's with the both, inability, though, let's be honest. Right, right. <laughs> the in, the, he can be, definitely. Uh, but the inability to work collectively to empower ourselves as a community is also tied into, you know, tools that he utilizes in right. othering. You know, I think. The othering. LBJ that's exactly that stated, right. The othering. LBJ yeah. has stated, if you convince the poorest white man that he's still better than, you know, the wealthiest black man, he will not only support you, but he'll right. empty his pockets for you. So we have individuals that are in the struggle as well, that are yeah. in poverty, but they're constantly othering. Well, I'm still better than you, or right. I still have it better off than you, or, right. or so on and so forth, or you're the reason I'm in poverty, when in actuality, it's capitalism and it's the government uh, That's right. know, constructed to protect uh, you know, a top and That's a bottom. Right. And it's a huge issue that we have to address. It's a huge issue. And I also think it's the reason why so many folks want to get away from the conversation about the way racism and class issues are so intertwined you know it's it's true that we can address all of the class issues and racism would still exist that's that's Mm -hmm. just a fundamental truth and it's unfortunate however by at least addressing the financial issues the class issues that are that are related to that at least folks lives are improved in the meantime and we can Mm -hmm. maybe work towards that other stuff but but the reason this doesn't get discussed is because the people in power the capitalists in power they want to hold on to their money. They want to hold on to their wealth. They don't want fundamental change to a system because it benefits them. Exactly. Exactly. So, Take profit first. Yeah, 100%. So um, another thing that I think you are completely right on that doesn't get discussed a lot is sex worker rights. So you made a, you made a point in your uh, piece on the website about um, the fact that people constantly have to take jobs out of out of survival basis it's and so mm-hmm. sex work mm-hmm. it may be the case that sex workers take those jobs because they have no other options but isn't that the same truth if somebody takes a job flipping burgers at mcdonald's those those workers at mcdonald's have protections they have rights they have all of those things going on but the sex workers don't so obviously we're getting to a, a space where people are going to make a moral argument i don't think right. um i don't think that should be part of the conversation i think what you're saying is correct And I think the second part of that is I had worked on human trafficking here in California uh, with a group of people. We wrote a bill. It's AB 2810. It was uh, years ago. It was one of the first uh, human trafficking bills that we had. And I am fully of the belief that the only way you really deal with human trafficking is by legalizing prostitution. And that's a really uncomfortable space for a lot of people to hear, right? Because they've been told for so long that it's, you know— women are both the victims and also the criminal, you know, right? It's, it's their, that sort of duo, uh, duo personification that gets nailed to them. So walk me through your platform because I think this is something that doesn't get discussed enough. I'm glad to see somebody running for Congress that actually wants to talk about it because I could imagine that even with some of your constituency, that might be kind of a taboo conversation to have. So no that's question. it's a brave thing for you to do. So um, please walk us through that because I love this. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. What we tell people is like, I'm not running uh, to win on meeting our community and uh, district where it's at. You know, we're running to educate and empower and hopefully help lead to where we need to be. And, you know, sex work is, you know, one of the, or if not the oldest profession in the history of professions, in the history of work. And taking morality, removing morality from the situation, Mm -hmm. I think it's extremely hypocritical for individuals to say they're for women's rights, uh, they're for LGBTQIA plus rights, they're for disability rights, uh, so on and so forth. They're for, you know, addressing homelessness. Again, these issues are interconnected. And if you don't understand how off they lead to sex work, and let's be honest, I'm not overgeneralizing. Some people are empowered and choose to be sex workers. But yes, often often it is for survival. Uh, Because, again, we know how women are underpaid. We know how trans women, particularly trans black women, are treated. We know how being a member of the LGBTI plus community often leads to homelessness, often leads to job discrimination. So you have extremely difficult times uh, trying to make a livable wage or even trying to make a minimum wage to access uh, employment. You know, individuals living with disabilities, often they cannot work a regular schedule, a nine to five, you know, second or third shift. So sex work is an option for them. Uh, so I think it's extremely important as someone, again, I'm not a sex worker, uh, but I, you know, I shout out to the sex work community who have embraced me as mm-hmm. someone who wants to earn allyship. You can or accomplish nice. it. You cannot call yourself an ally. You cannot call yourself an accomplice. It's not a noun. It's in verb form. You have to actively yeah. work to earn it, earn that That's title right. from those that are directly oppressed. And again, from being exposed, from learning, from making friendships, uh, from even dating, uh, I understand that we need to decriminalize sex work. And I'm not talking about the Nordic model. I'm talking about full decriminalization uh, because, again, right. we have to understand right. that the disproportionate number of women, of people of color, of individuals with disabilities, of the LGBTI plus community uh, that are impacted by sex work being criminalized throughout police mm-hmm. departments. Gun violence is not the only form of violence that police officers uh, engage in in regards right. to our community. Often it's sex violence as well. And because sex workers oftentimes do not have the voice uh, to articulate or the access or the agency to fight back, they're prey. That's right. So we have to decriminalize and we have to look at how uh, legislation like FOSTA and SESTA is actually bad and negative uh, for even addressing human trafficking, which often, of course, is polarized and attached directly to the sex work industry. Because if we decriminalize sex work, if we eliminate FOSTA and SESTA, that will actually help fight against human trafficking yeah. because individuals within the industry are more empowered uh, to yeah. seek help, to speak up, and, and to fight back. That's right. Well, yeah, and it eliminates this whole like idea of, of needing a pimp in a, in, a, in a certain level. I agree with you. That is mm-hmm. how you address it is by legalization. I think it's really uncomfortable for a lot of people to hear that. And, yeah. you well, know, I will, when I, I first— say I'm for— not sorry to cut you off, but we're for decriminalization. I know there are some talks for legalization, but I just want to make it clear. We're for decriminalization and why we say decriminalization instead of legalization. Okay, Because gotcha. often similar to the cannabis industry that is now legalized in Illinois. Right. And of course, we're fighting for at a federal level. You still have various forms of oppression that exist because like we see yeah. with cannabis now, black and brown individuals are being frozen out uh, from the legalized industry, from profiting. And, you know, many sex workers believe that if it was fully legalized, we'd see that same type of uh, impact on sex work. So that's why we're for decriminalization. But I understand, you know, some people do push for legalization, but I just want to make that clear difference. Yeah, I'm I'm like going full for the whole thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. uh, But yeah, no, that is a good point that you're making. Um, 
so yeah, that's, 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 that's exactly right. So I wanted to also ask you about your organization, the Suburban Unity Alliance that you formed there with some other groups in Chicago. Um, talk us through a little bit of some of the things you're working. I know repealing the Dickey Act or amendment is one of them, which has to do with the CDC uh, financing. I mean, Suburban Unity Alliance was formed in 2016. Um, you know, I just essentially was on the couch one day you know, somebody who, you know, attended multiple marches, who's, yeah. you know, been involved with coalition building. And I was just tired. You know, this was prior to 45 taking office. Uh, but I just, mm. you know, just understood, again, that the issues are interconnected. And I felt like to date, you know, I personally was not doing enough. So, you know, I'm a huge Muhammad Ali fan. I actually have a quote of his tatted on my arm. And the quote is, service to others is the rent you pay for mm -hmm. room here on this earth. And at that time, I felt just as a teacher, as a, you know, disabled military veteran, I wasn't paying enough rent. Uh, right. So I formed a nonprofit to expand and magnify the ability uh, to address the systemic issues that we were facing in our community. So uh, formed in 2016, you know, it's 100 percent volunteer based. I don't make any money from it. No one does. That's how we like to have it. Uh, but we literally have done everything from I mean, it's a, it's a huge list. Uh, we've done everything from pay for college. Uh, to pay for mortgages, pay for rent, nice. uh, you know, fight for individuals that are, you know, being attacked by discriminatory, uh, you know, mortgage lenders and, and property management companies. We pay for groceries, pay for car repairs. We paid for uh, multiple funerals because unfortunately gun violence continues to be pervasive. And right. because we don't have generational wealth, often people have to go to a GoFundMe account uh, to help pay for services. Uh, we got Columbus Day eliminated in our community and Indigenous Peoples Day adopted. Uh, nice. We supported PASO, the West Suburban Action Project, in their fight uh, to bring a welcoming village ordinance to our community. So we collaborated and built coalition work with them on that. Uh, we helped, again, tying it into sex work. Uh, we were literally featured for helping two uh, survivors of sex trafficking uh, when the organization they were with closed down and they lost funding. So we raised wow. in two days over $13,000 for them. Found That's them amazing. Placement. Uh, we've purchased security systems for churches in the Pilsen community. They were being harassed by white supremacist organizations, yeah. trained our members on filling out DACA application renewals and set with dreamers to help them through that process. So small businesses. So it doesn't stop the homeless. We feed the homeless, clothe the homeless, work with them, particularly during the winter months, which can be brutal. And many individuals lose their lives. Yeah, so especially in Chicago. Has been wow. everywhere. Exactly. You know, we worked on local campaign races in regards to supporting progressive candidates, uh, progressive policy issues, like you say, certain amendments, uh, the fight for 15, even though 15 is not enough. Certain communities opted out of, you know, $15 minimum wage within Illinois. We built the coalition with other wonderful organizations to ensure that part community opted in. Uh, so the work continues, you know, even though weed is legal right now, you know, January 1st is legalized, there's still growth. Uh, we still have to get make sure that employers are not discriminating against employees that use that use it for medicine, even if they use it for a recreational level. We do not believe an employer right. should discriminate against employees. And we also have an issue with again the lack of brown and uh, black and brown representation within ownership uh, within the you know re legal re le weed industry. And lastly, uh, we have an issue with eight percent of funding uh, from legalization going towards our police departments policing uh, street level dealers who predominantly are black and brown and oh, poor right. individuals. And we already know how the racist war yeah. on drugs has played out and impacted our community. So yeah, Suburban Union Alliance has been everywhere. And you know, I just want to sincerely thank the community uh, for continuing to support us, for continuing to believe and, and just engage in the work. But I will also say this, and I'll, I'll end, this, end it this way on this point, we're still part of the problem. Uh, we should be in a world where nonprofits shouldn't have to exist. Yeah. We should be in a world where GoFundMes shouldn't have to exist. Like, Essentially, I'm still yeah. putting a Band-Aid over an open wound. 
I'm treating you. symptoms. And that's what led me to run for office and, you know, what led us to run for office because we have to go from treating symptoms, from feeding the homeless to giving everything that we can to actually ending homelessness. Uh, so I want our nonprofit to be put out of business eventually. I 100% agree with you. I called this philanthrocapitalism because mm -hmm. I think in many ways it, you're right, it's a Band-Aid. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have to beg billionaires to give us back money to take care of some mm -hmm. of the problems that their system has created. You know, Correct. we should just address the problems in the system to begin with. So I agree with you on that. I also want to talk to you about unemployment. So uh, it's a very daunting statistic that black workers are unemployed at twice the rate as white workers, no matter the education level. So that I'm talking about high school, master's degree, PhD, baccalaureate degree, like every single level, level this is true. So there's clearly a serious problem here. Um, what are some of your thoughts on how we fix that? Yeah, again, it's a huge issue that exists. Of course, you know, we know the history of affirmative action, uh, why many believe it was needed and necessary. But, you know, even within our district, several years ago, we were actually at 4% the national average in regards to okay. black individuals and the majority of individuals being unemployed. Now we're at about 2.5% the national average, but it's a huge okay. issue. And we specifically break it down and, and further articulate it in regards to, you know, black individuals within our community, minority, people of color, uh, it's discrimination. You know, I mean, it's point blank, yeah. period. Individuals, what we try to teach individuals is that we have to understand that you don't have to be racist, sexist, homophobic, ableist, classist to work within those particular types of systems. Mm -hmm. Our systems are built upon oppression. So as an individual, you may be part of a hiring committee. Uh, you may be part right. of a human resources department. You may be part of an administration you know, position or you know, a job or so on and so forth to where you may not consider yourself you know, a certain type of oppression but you're still supporting that oppressive system. Right, Even in teaching, right, right. I'm a black male. I think we're at 2%. There's 2% black male teachers across the country, across the wow. nation. We have to look at, again, it's not one solution, the interconnected issues that exist, the lack right. of investment within our public school systems, individuals coming up through our public schools, the school to prison pipeline that exists. Right. Uh, we have to look at the standardized tests that teachers have to yeah. take that are often biased that many teachers that are more than capable have not passed or have difficulty passing to enter into, mm -hmm. you know, the teacher force. We have to talk about the affordability of educational, you know, at post-secondary level. Can, right. can you afford to become a teacher? And then we most, we know that most teachers are not making that much money. So then you're graduating with thirty dollars to $40,000. You're probably only making thirty dollars to $40,000. And that's yeah. before taxes get taken out. Right. So it's a huge issue that exists. So I think across the board, we just have to look at the pervasiveness and the systemic nature of discrimination that still exists within our workforces, because I think that's the primary reason. We have the capabilities, we have the opportunities, but even at the most minute level, I'm a black male, 2% in regards to teachers. Yeah. I've been through multiple hiring processes to where I'm literally, and again, these could be great people, but still as a black male, where I'm literally sitting in front of nothing but white faces yeah. that are going to determine and make a decision if I'm going to be effective uh, within a classroom. Yeah. They may not have my background or understand what I've experienced and right. oftentimes understand what many kids experience that enter within the school setting. So I think at a state level and at a federal level, again, we talked about it, we continue to talk about it, there needs to be a baseline. I think there needs to be a baseline in regards to amount of the percentage amount of black teachers, the percentage amount of brown teachers. Uh, yeah. You can go even further you know, Jewish teachers, Muslim teachers, so on and so forth. Right. What type of representation do you have in your building that reflects your student body? I right. think that's a huge issue. 
and I think it needs to be addressed. Yeah, at the very least, it should reflect the the percentage of the populations. That would just be exactly. Parody, exactly. I you know, know I focused it right. I know I focused it primarily on schools, but this is across the board in regards to government board. contracts, you know, locally or federal level. Right. When we're handing out government contracts. What are the percentages that are going to, you yeah. know, black contractors, brown contractors, so on and so forth? We have to be purposeful and again recognize how disproportionately black and brown people have been, you know, marginalized. Absolutely. So now we have to disproportionately empower them and look at everything that we do through a, essentially a reparations lens. Like, how can we make sure that those that have been directly impacted can now be directly empowered? Yeah, no. And, you know, I so um, it's interesting you bring it up reparations. I've actually long been a proponent of reparations, like before anybody ever discussed them. I know it's become a point of conversation now um, with at least uh, Williamson bringing it up on the debate stage, which was good. It's something we should discuss. And from my my point of view, you know, I studied philosophy. I talked about this in my thesis because I think it's really important that the government addresses its failings. I don't necessarily look at reparations as a transfer of money from white people to black people. Like some people want to frame the conversation that way. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's the legal problem. The legal problem is that they made a pact and they were legally responsible to hold to that pact and they failed to they didn't protect the freed people that they freed they made these promises that were never fulfilled right so at the at the very base level that needs to be addressed and i don't think that that's like a fundamentally scary idea and i don't know why so many people um can't really Mm -hmm. wrap their heads around that yeah again you know i think you know by design we have a in a capitalistic society we have an individualistic mindset you know, so many people throw out that bootstrap mentality. Well, if I go, yeah, you up can't pull yourself up by your you, bootstraps you if you don't I mean, have any boots. Right. Right. It's an, it's a ridiculous narrative. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but what we tell people is we look at reparations within our camp, similar to how we're looking at the Green New Deal and the climate. Yeah. Like okay. anything that you do, whether it be, you know, investing in infrastructure, job creation, you right. know, moving from fossil fuels to clean energy. You're also you're always thinking about the environment. So anything that we do in regards to job creation, anything that we do in regards to climate, because we know black and brown individuals are disproportionately impacted by pollution. Uh, They pollute, they produce probably 20 percent and intake maybe 40 to 50 percent. So any decision that we make, we're not looking for 40 acres and a mule. We're not looking (laughs) for a one time check. Uh, right. We're looking for. Yeah, I think we I think we passed the mule thing. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I wouldn't know what to do with a mule, Uh, but we're looking for long term (laughs) investment to where, again, we start the process of building generational social and economic capital. I 100% Anything agree. and everything that we do, how do we invest agree. in the communities? You know, and, I, and it doesn't, I mean, I don't know what that form looks like, but there's a million ways that these inequalities can be addressed, you know, it's, mm-hmm. and, but they do need to be addressed. There needs to be some sort of acknowledgement or some sort of point where we finally acquiesce to all the things that happened because it's, it wasn't just the slavery. It's everything that happened past that. All of these things oh, yeah. were economic systems that were designed to oh, extract yeah. wealth from a group of people. So whether it's Definitely. Jim Crow, whether it's redlining of mortgages, like sla- all of these mm-hmm. things. And I no think, question. I think that's where the failure of the government lies. They fundamentally did not fulfill their obligations and protected the people that they freed. And they promised to right. do that. So but that's you know just my opinion you know anyway. who did get reparations? Former slave owners. Former slave owners got reparations. Uh, they got a check cut. Yeah, so how does... That's yeah, always and, interesting. And, you know what? How <laughs> does that work, right? That's just mind-numbing <laughs> to me. Because, again, we're talking about the legal ob- obligations of the government, right? So this isn't right. necessarily the transfer of wealth from one group to another, of si- groups of citizens to another. It's the failure of the government 
to do right. what they did. And this is a, there's a clear legal argument for that, in my opinion. So, and you're right. If there wasn't a clear legal argument, how is it that the slave owners were able to receive compensation for for losing the, you know, labor, which is so what fucking they, right. ridiculous. They, it's not right. even. What they deemed was property. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so wrong. It's so wrong. But it, here, yet here we are, it's like 2020 and we're still having this conversation, which is just mind numbing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, God, so frustrated. I also want to discuss disability rights with you because this is again, an area that doesn't get enough discussion, I think. And you had a great uh, part of your platform on this. So a lot of folks might not realize this, but in the 1938 uh, fair labor standards that were put out, there is an amendment where a, a corporation or a company can apply for a waiver. And if they get this waiver, they can hire disability or disabled folks and pay them less than minimum wage. And it's perfectly legal so we have situations where now where folks uh disabled folks are working and they're getting paid two or three dollars an hour it's it's gross it's so gross i can't believe that our government is um fundamentally allowing this to happen right so um you know i just it's very frustrating to me so what 75 percent of americans with a disability disability are also unemployed So I think uh, this is important because I think that was the argument that was put forth by the government, that if we allow this for this waiver to happen, more of these folks will be able to get a job. But that's not clearly that's not what's happened. It's been decades now and and nothing has improved for these folks. So how do we fix this? Yeah, I mean, again, you know, disability rights are human rights. We truly believe that. And this is an issue that is extremely close to my heart Uh, as a special education teacher. You know, That's I right. teach students on a daily basis, uh, you know, with various disabilities. They live with disabilities, but they're worth and they have value just as much as any other human being. Absolutely. Uh, Able body or otherwise. And they have something to bring to the table and something to provide and invest in and give back to the community. So, you know, amendments are some amendments are made to be overturned and yeah. just law should not be followed. And yeah. I believe that amendments should be overturned. I truly believe that, as you mentioned, you know, whether in regards to employment or housing, our individuals living with disabilities continue to be discriminated against at, uh, at a local level and nationally. So it's a huge issue that exists. And what happens is, again, it's predatory in nature. Yeah. You have these jobs that are looking for individuals to just essentially work backbreaking hours. They take advantage of them and they're paying them substandard wages. So we have to ensure that that amendment is overturned. We have to ensure that anyone with a disability, yeah. again, gets paid the same amount of money yeah. as anyone who's considered not having a disability, because again, they bring something to the table as well. Absolutely. And I think we have to be purposeful in communicating to not only jobs, but our police departments in our communities, yeah. how individuals with disabilities interact and how they right. bring you know, a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of ability to the table because they can work. Uh, so let's pay them what they deserve. Yeah. Or let's provide them and demand demand, you know, similar to affirmative action, uh, that individuals with disabilities receive employment and receive employment at a livable wage, and they're able to flourish. Uh, Because, again, it shouldn't happen, but it does because oftentimes people look at these fights and and many people think in their heads, well, I'm not living with a disability, so this fight doesn't really concern me, but it should concern all of us as human beings. And, you know, I just, you know, we're actually going to, and you know, this is just connected I'm actually, you know, helping lead a coalition to, you know, our local uh, government meeting tomorrow because a, a young man that I consider family, extremely close to me, he was actually attacked by a community member. He's a young man with a disability. He thought this community member's car was a lift. 
you know, a lip, a ride share, did not touch the vehicle, but went up to it. And this community member, you know, went off, beat him down. You know, the police came. It was kind of, it wasn't handled correctly. So even our police departments, they need advanced training in regards to recognizing individuals with disabilities, particularly our, you know, our black men, our black women, black men, brown women, uh, you know, so on and so forth, because often those indivisible disabilities, you can look at someone and think to yourself that whatever normal is, oh, well, they're normal. When in actuality, they just simply process and understand differently. Uh, So let's expand our our, our point of knowledge to, you know, to, to recognize that. I 100% agree with that. Um, so I know you support Medicare for All. I think that's important because I, I believe at this point that that would be a progressive litmus test. Um, but what are some be. of the, yeah, it should be. What are some of the other areas that uh, you have similar policy positions um, on with Senator, with Senator Sanders? Yeah, definitely. I mean, across the board, you know, pretty much our platform is, is extremely exactly. similar. I think. Uh, okay. There's not much difference. I think, you know, two of the biggest differences is, you know, we're clear about the fight for reparations. Like, I think we fully articulate that and make that clear. And we're also clear in regards to the decriminalization of sex work, uh, which we're hoping to push, you know, the Sanders campaign on expanding on also because these issues are interconnected. Yeah, Uh, But, you know, the main issues that exist, no fight is winnable without our earth or without our health. So clearly, and of course, you know, the Green New Deal, and Medicare for all is a human right, not access to, not option, not choice as yeah. a human right are the two biggest issues because without our earth, without our health, we can't win anything else. That's right. And both these fights have a direct connection uh, to racial injustice, to yeah. gender injustice. Uh, so we have to recognize those interconnected things also because when we're fighting for Medicare and the Green New Deal, that's also going to help with employment. That's also going to help with housing. Uh, that's also going to help with opportunity creation, which then is connected to a decrease in pervasive mm-hmm. gun violence in our urban community. So it's connected. It's connected. Uh, you know, so yeah, yeah, so it's connected. So we're basically fighting for it all. Uh, we don't believe in going halfway. We don't believe yeah. in being moderate, uh, centrist, you know, straddling the fence. Uh, in 2020, we believe it's time for uh, working class right. poor to be truly empowered and for us to no longer put the Democratic Party before the people. The people come first. That's right. Um, so you sort of mentioned this in passing, and I want to talk about it a little bit more, how environmental justice, how climate change issues are absolutely related to racist issues, not racist, is racist mm-hmm. issues. Because I think mm-hmm. a lot of folks don't really think about the fact that that industries that are polluting are usually placed in uh, communities of color. So mm-hmm. you're breathing the, the more toxic airs. Like there's a whole host of, of ways that these things are right. intertwined. What did you think about at that debate when Senator Sanders tried to explain that and he was cut off by the moderator because right. she basically said, stick to the point, the point is climate right. change. Like, I mean, right. this is just, I guess, one more example of capitalism undergirding racism. But were you right. bothered by that? Senator Sanders, I do want to put the same question to you, Senator Sanders. What message do you think? I answer that question, but I wanted to get back to the issue of climate change for a moment, because I do believe this is the existential issue. Senator, with all respect, this question is about race. Can you answer the question as it was asked? I certainly can. Because people of color, in fact, are going to be the people suffering most if we do not deal with climate change. No, of course, you know, and I actually made a post about it that evening, uh, but you know, S- yeah. Senator Sanders was right in making that point that, you know, climate change or climate justice is racial justice. 
Uh, because again, let's look at colonialism. I mean, yeah. this land is, we're on stolen land, first and foremost. 100%. Uh, you know, if we talk about, you know, our indigenous individuals that, again, were on this land way before we were, yeah. uh, they, they respected nature. You know, they yeah. appreciated nature. Um, I mean, look at Standing Rock, the issues that occurred. Look to where we're putting uh, many of these pipelines and, you know, that's trying right. to pollute our earth. Uh, that's racist and that's racism yep. because yep. if we make the connection to manifest destiny to where colonists yeah. basically utilize religion to justify basically murdering and genocide and stealing <laughs> land, 100%. they othered they othered indigenous people. You know, they're savages. Uh, they're less than us. Right. You know, they either right. assimilate or we're going to eliminate them. And then when some did assimilate, you they still eliminated them anyway. So you can see, right. They eliminated them anyway. And that's a narrative that exists with slavery. You yeah. know, these Africans, they're savages. They're less than. We can enslave them. Yeah. So, right. It goes on and on. And if you make that connection, the reason that indigenous individuals weren't necessarily enslaved is because they knew the land. They were from here. They right. knew the earth. Uh, so they were going to fight back. You know, you try to steal somebody from a different land and bring them That's to a right. foreign territory. It's, it's harder for them to fight back. It's much harder. They don't know harder. where the hell they yeah. are. Uh, they don't know so where they are. Those yeah. Connections. It's, it's founded. Yeah. Pollution is founded on racism. You know, a theft of land and, and, you know, placing profit first, you know, building a railroad, so on and so forth. How we treated Asian Americans mm -hmm. and Asian immigrants, so on yeah. and so forth. And I want to also pinpoint, again, this is just a connected issue. Uh, we say this is a nation of immigrants, and I just want to check people. Just make sure when you're saying that, yes, this is a nation of immigrants outside of indigenous individuals. And the descendants of Africans are actually forced migrants. Uh, many of us did not immigrate, immigrate here. We were forced here. So I just wanted to pinpoint that as well. No, you're right. But if and we, I would take that one step further. We're a nation of colonizers. Right, exactly. Exactly. A colonized nation, essentially. I mean, look at what's happening with Puerto Rico right now. They can't vote. They've been colonized. They want their <laughs> freedom. Like and look insanity. what continues to happen yeah. there. Uh, but again, you know, so this is through generations and generations. Look at the communities that are directly impacted by the majority of pollution. Yeah. Data shows that it's you know, not black white and wealthy brown, people. Yeah. Exactly. Black and brown um, Americans and citizens, we produce maybe 20 to 30 percent of pollution, but we intake 50 to 60 percent of pollution. It's a huge issue. I mean, have we heard of Flint? We know what happened. Yeah, they Flint, still don't have clean prices. water. It's they insane. They still don't have clean water. We're facing that in Chicago as well with lead in our water, lead in our paint. It's a huge issue that exists. Plants around, you know, uh, emitting out toxic pollution. Uh, you know, our students, many students, you know, they fought against what's known as yeah. Aramark when our former mayor was trying to privatize. And we had mold throughout our businesses and they were selling moldy food, how it connects right, to right. agriculture. Pollution connects to agriculture uh, in regards to these subsidies that these farmers get. And often in urban communities, we're not getting fresh right. produce. We have to buy, you know, bags of chips and, you know, all these things filled with toxins uh, to essentially have sustenance in our bodies. Uh, yeah. So it's all interconnected. So when it's we're addressing the climate, we're addressing these issues. And really, it's not only is it all interconnected, it all goes back to profiteering in our system, like all of it. Mm -hmm. All of it's about somebody making money somewhere. You know, and I, I, exactly. I'm having a flashback to that Larry uh, Summers, who, who's the Harvard economics professor that was also uh, worked in the Clinton administration. But he mm -hmm. put out this memo, memo about how the World Trade Organization said, like, it, it was tongue-in-cheek, I suppose, or he said so after the fact. But he was talking about how if we, if we could export our pollution to the global south, we could deal with it much more efficiently from an economic perspective, not ever once considering how immoral this is, right? So immoral. Right, right. But it's, it's one more example. Yes, let's just export all of our pollution to where the brown people mm -hmm. live because, you know, that's mm -hmm. economically more efficient. 
Right, so right. the idea that these things aren't related is just just mind numbing to me because they absolutely are. And I was just so angry that that moderator just cut him off and didn't let him get to the point right. that he was trying to make. Uh, no, but of you're course, right. you're right. Of course, he came back and was like, "I'm not having that." So that's right. That was great, and that's why it's so important <laughs> that we educate ourselves. And you know, shout out to you know Senator Sanders and Congresswoman Alexandria Castro Cortez yeah. for putting out their Green New Deal housing plan. Because, again, it ties directly into public housing, expanding that, you know, reinvesting in it and creating job opportunities uh, for people within these communities. Right. So um, specifically in your area, um, are there any issues that we haven't discussed that you would like to bring up that are important for your election? You know, again, I think, as we stated earlier, we're not trying to meet our community where they are to win. If we're going to win, we're going to meet our we're going to take our community to where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges for us is, you know, I'm a democratic socialist. Uh, We speak truth to power on a daily basis. We call out capitalism as a root cause issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've endorsed Bernie Sanders early on. So when we're canvassing, we're also knocking on the door for Bernie Sanders. And I recognize not everybody supports Bernie. uh, But one thing I hope that individuals recognize with our community and beyond, the one thing that we could connect to and that is universal is the struggle. This is class warfare. It's the top 1% versus the 99. And please do not believe that you're not part of the 99% because oppression may not be at your doorstep today. But once it's done with that particular demographic, I guarantee you it's going to turn its ugly face uh, to whoever you may be. So we have to challenge ourselves to build interconnected uh, interconnected coalitions and truly fight together uh, within this class warfare to win. So understand that. And, and that's what we just try to, you know, pinpoint and, pu- and push out. This is bigger than us. Elections come and go. Candidates come and go. We're a small part in a large movement. But that's mm-hmm. why, understand why we're so bold. Understand why we mm-hmm. post and we're trying to educate to get people to understand why, you know, blue no matter who, particularly in a primary, yeah. is extremely problematic. Uh, because we truly have to identify on all days, you know, we're talking about Martin Luther King Day uh, and so on and so forth. We truly have to identify how oppression is directly tied to economic injustice. 100%. And we're not going to be able to further eliminate and eradicate any level of oppression unless we directly attack capitalism. I 100% agree with you. So Anthony, if folks want to donate to your campaign, where's the best place for them to do that? Awesome, yes. They could go to W... And I, I just laugh because my students always tell me how old I am because I still say WWW. Yeah. But you do... <laughs> I'm, I'm aging myself. I'm, I'm aging myself. But you can go to www.voteanthonyclark.com. You know, it has our platform fully articulated. It has a contribution link. And we tell people we, we're, we're powered by the big poor. You know, we're not yeah. far, big pharma. We're not these large corporations. We're 100% grassroots powered by the big poor. So even a dollar makes a difference. Yeah, and understand we don't take any type of support for granted. We're giving everything that we have in this fight for change. If you would like to volunteer, you can phone bank from anywhere within the country. We use an online system. If you're local, come out and canvas. If you're not local, want to drive, come out and canvas. We knock on doors from ourselves and Bernie and heavy Biden territory oftentimes. So yeah. we're truly pushing for that change. And if you want to join us on social media, Instagram and Twitter, Anthony B. Clark 20. So that's Anthony B. Clark 20. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Excellent. All right. Thanks for coming on the show, Anthony. And I look forward no, to talking with you awesome. again sometime. This was awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. All power to the people. Uh, power let's to continue the people. To fight.